0: My next guest joins us from South Australia, and thanks for joining us on a Sunday morning, Dr Wes Pearson. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, so I mean, you are a research scientist at the Australian Wine Research Institute, and also a winemaker at Juxtaposed and Dodgy Brothers, but um, you're a Canadian. How did you end up over in Australia?
1: Um, well, um, there actually is a wine industry, or production industry in Canada, but um you wouldn't hear too much about it over here so that was kind of one of the things that as i was as my wine career was starting to ramp up um wasn't uh there wasn't the drive to stay in canada i wanted to go uh, um you know explore different regions different places and you know i had a young family at the time and um you know, Australia just ticked all the boxes, right? It was more than just a great region, just a you know a great country to live in, a uh, you know stable economy, great education, all of those. Things. Great climate, of course. Yeah. Coming from Canada, the whole beach culture thing was reasonably attractive. So um, that was that was partly why. I mean, one of the great things in wine is that you need a good climate to grow grapes. So most of the places around the world where they where they make wine are not they're not too bad. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Australia just ticked all those boxes. Yeah. Of course,
0: one of the most famous regions is the Okanagan, and there's I know there's stuff on the other side. Are you from one side or the other of Canada or somewhere in the middle?
1: Well, actually, I'm from exactly in the middle. Right. Uh, I grew up in, in Winnipeg, which is the, the geographical centre of Canada, basically, and it's truly one of the coldest cities on the planet. And so, um, so I, I, as soon as I finished high school, I was out of there. I moved, moved west to British Columbia, and... Um, uh, moved to the ski fields of Whistler. Lived in Whistler for uh, 13 years, and, and that was actually where my wine journey started. Because working in the hospitality business, I would work in a restaurant at night so that I could spend my days snowboarding. Um, and then, as you know, as the years go on, you get more into, uh, you know, I got more into food and more into wine, um, and uh, trained as a Psalm. And that was kind of how I, uh, that was my where my passion for wine came from. And then eventually, um. You know, I, I, again, to have a small family, it was like, uh, I think hospitality isn't, isn't the future. Went back to school and did uh, did wine biochemistry, and that was the, the start of the um, winemaking thing.
0: There, look, I would imagine there's a fair bit of money in, in places where there's top-line top skiing as well, so there's probably some pretty good wines going out, I would have thought.
1: Oh, look, you know what? That, the education that I got working in, you know, working in a couple of the top restaurants in Canada, honestly, was uh, was amazing right there were you know access to wines, to be able to taste wines you could never afford otherwise <laughs> yes. uh, on a regular basis and, and and to have you know a, a three million dollar seller to play with um you know at, you know as a song serving your guests it was uh, yeah it was wonderful it was a great experience and it certainly i learned a lot it gave me some good perspective on uh, you know the global uh, uh picture of of wine and certainly that's helped me um as as my career has gone on as
0: a winemaker and a researcher too. Yeah, that's that's cool. I have never really worked in top restaurants around the place, but I've been really lucky to work for a couple of wineries that had produced, you know, owners that had some pretty good sellers. And you know, the great thing, the other great thing about the industry is that everybody seems so generous, and they're they're always happy to share their bottles. Uh, have
1: you found yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, one. Not only in hospitality, but I remember when I was I was working in Bordeaux after I finished uh, I finished university, and I was in um, uh, I was working at Le which is a second growth in Saint Julien. Yeah, and uh, and the owner uh, Jean Hubert Delon, he was uh, he's he truly one of the richest men in Bordeaux. Right, it had this, as you would imagine, an absolutely jaw dropping <laughs> cellar. And every Wednesday, they would go him and his him and his mates. They would go hunting. Then they would come back to the chateau and they would have lunch. He would choose wines from the cellar, have, them decant, have the chef decant them and serve them to his, his, uh, his friends blind. Yeah. Then he would also decant about 200 mils of the bottle and give them to us in the lab to analyze and then we would take them home. So on Wednesday nights, my roommate and I would have this lineup of the greatest wines ever produced on the planet, and we would just be sitting in our little hobble, this little, this little house on the on the side of the chateau that we were staying in. While we worked there, it was it was just unbelievable. But he was so happy to share with us, talk about them the next day. It was just yeah, it's that that even at that level, this kind of aristocracy of Bordeaux, there was still this. Yeah, happy to share the wine with you and talk about it. And yeah, it was great. It was again a great experience.
0: You couldn't
2: you couldn't buy that kind of, <laughs>
1: Thinking, uh, it, you know,
0: Wednesday nights at drink. Wes drinking pre oh. pre or oh. phylloxera Shadow Lafitte.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, forty five, sixty one, eighty nine. Oh. It was yeah, it was just like why are we drinking tonight? <laughs> <laughs> it was great, yeah, it was wonderful.
0: Uh that sounds pretty grass. Um so yeah. tell us a little bit about the AWRI and and the sort of the sort of work that it does.
1: Well, so um, the AWRI is a pretty unique proposition globally as far as research providers are concerned. And um, what's unique about it is that most of the other um, most of the other big names in, in wine research globally are all academic institutions. Right. So University of Adelaide is is quite prominent. University of California, Davis, Geisenheim in Germany, University of Bordeaux. Um, they're, they're all universities. Yep. The AWRI is non university. It's a research provider. So we are funding, instead of coming from government students, those kinds of things, our government comes from the industry. We are funded, uh, to a certain extent, from levy payers. So if you buy a ton of grapes, you pay a grape levy. Some of that goes to, and that goes to one Australia. Some of that is for marketing, and some of that is for R and D. So we right. collect a, uh, a good chunk of that R and D levy, and that funds our research. So what makes that different from most um, models is that uh, we have there's an element of accountability for our organization to to do research that is um, tangible and impactful for our industry here. And I think that, that sometimes in other um, in other models or other you know again academic institutions there isn't that focus there isn't the focus might be more on getting papers published or doing brand new novel stuff or whatever but ours we have to uh, we, you know we have to report back to the industry on what is their value that we're giving them right and so that changes the focus of our of our um, our what our research projects might be to really focus on making australian wine better tomorrow for producers and so i think that's uh, that uniqueness in our institution has made us quite competitive globally uh in the research space and it's a, a pretty unique proposition there's nowhere else really in in the world that has a an organization organization like the AWRI. so so it's been um, uh, you know and i guess i'm coming from a Coming from working from the organization, but I would say that we've uh, uh, been—it's been a a strong benefit to the the industry here over many years.
0: Yeah, that's great. I've also got—I've got you and Proctor in the studio as well. Mm -hmm. I know that you guys have been um, chatting over future leaders stuff, and he was saying that some of your research is focused on the sort of no alcohol, low alcohol sort of stuff.
1: Yes, I've been working in that space myself for a couple of years. Um, As a researcher, my background is uh, sensory science. And, um, and so when, you know, with the rise of this, uh, product category, say over the past few years, um, we wanted to come to, we wanted to get some, get come to grips with what these, what these products look like and, and um, what they were all about, how they're being made, all that kind of stuff. So I was tapped on the shoulder to, to, to manage that project over the past couple of years. And that's, so that's been more, um, just kind of fact finding, figuring out. You know, like I said, how they're making the wines, what do they look like from a sensory perspective, what are they lacking, those kinds of things. And now we're starting to move that forward to try to figure out the problem. I mean, I don't know if you've had too many no and no alcohol wines. I have, yeah, I've had a lot. Certainly they're, um, um, they're not quite keeping up in, uh, in the segment, say, like beer is, where, where those products are really almost unmistakable for traditional beers. Yeah. Um, there's well, still a big gap for, for wine.
0: I guess one of the big challenges is the fact that with beer you're only taking 4 or 5% alcohol out and you can make up mouthfeel with other things but with wine 13 14% of alcohol just leaves a bit of a gap in terms of how you get that mouthfeel so what are, what are some of the ways do you think that we can create more of that kind of feel of wine in the mouth
1: well, One of the things that one of the things that's different another thing that's different about beer compared to wine right is Pardon me the beer you you know you can use different ingredients um, to create you know uh, through fermentation or or all kinds of different different routes to building that mouthfeel. Yeah. Where wine is a more uh, I don't want to call it more traditional product, but it's not like it, there's no ingredients on the back label, right? We don't add things. Um, you're not you're not allowed to add flavors. You're not allowed to add. Things that we, is going to you know change the mouthfeel, all those kinds of things, they're not they're not permitted in the production of wine. And yeah. so, um, wine has this unique set of rules when it comes to even in no no alcohol, right? You're going to be going to package it, right? It looks like a wine bottle still, still has a classic wine label. All those things, all those cues, they all still say wine. And so, producers or sorry, pardon me, not producers, consumers, they still have this. Um, this idea that you know wine is, is it still needs to maintain that kind of natural product. So, so you can't you you're you're a bit bound by what you can add to to help recreate that that effect of, um you know, the loss of that ethanol from the from the wine. And so that uh, that nut has not been cracked yet. So that's so that's what we're that's part of what we're working on is right. How can we achieve those kinds of things? Um, build that texture and that mouthfeel back up. Um, and do so in a way that, you know, we're not having this big ingredients list on the back of the label.
0: Yeah. Is it is, is it partially perception, Wes, that you know, consumers are expecting something that says wine to taste like wine? And, and is it possible, do you think, to change the perception? I'm thinking more specifically, like, of a product like a piquette or something like a white piquette in a can or something a bit different.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Expectation, you know, consumer expectation is... Um, uh, a huge element to this and i think that it's, it's easy to see you know uh, as people are they're pretty ambitious with some of these things you'll see some of these bottles are, are labeled with um, certainly with variety but also with you know uh, i'm starting to see a few that have uh, like region labeled on there and so now you're you know if you're selling a, a no or no alcohol wine and it's it's eight dollars And it's at the grocery store shelf and you know you just grab it you're you're probably the consumer that's buying that product is their expectations are um low right at that but if if now you're labeled with variety you're labeling with region and you're charging 25 dollars well so that that consumer is a different consumer Mm. and they would have they would understand what barossa shiraz tastes like and they would have some greater expectations for that product and so when it doesn't meet those expectations they go that's rubbish, they dump it down the drain and they don't drink it again. And then they don't buy the product again. That yeah. consumer aversion element is something that we need to be careful of because these people will try these products, they won't like them, and then they don't come back to the category, right? And then they go drink non-alcoholic beer or something or, or whatever. We're losing those, um, those consumers from, uh, from the wine category. So there is, a, there, there is a good push for us to really work and try to solve this problem that that we can bring those consumers back in and make good replacement products, right? A wine that on a Tuesday night you don't necessarily want to have a glass of wine, but you still really like wine. So you we can have a product that suits that. It's like the I always use the um, uh, the Rebel Whopper at Hungry Jacks is a great example of yeah. a product that's been done well as a replacement product, right? They're not Hungry Jacks are not trying to convince vegetarians to come into Hungry Jacks. Yeah. They're trying to convince meat eaters to have a healthy option that still tastes good and replicates that meat, uh, you know, that, that that burger experience. And so that's kind of – that's how I envision what we need to do with wines. We need to find that product that still meets all those consumer expectations but is a healthier option for the regular wine drinker on a Tuesday night.
2: That's an interesting uh, – g'day, Wes, this you and here. That's an interesting uh, parallel to draw with the with the Rebel Whopper because I know that one of the ways, like exactly like you said there um, – out to convince the meat eater so actually Rebel Whoppers are not like strictly vegan for example, they're cooked on the same grill, do you think that's also something where with the the wines it's like you have to use the same barrel? That
1: That is a good question, I mean all of those cues, all of those things that we look at in traditional wine um, you know there, there there would be a long list of them, so figuring out what are the most important ones, right and some of that um, you can see that in some of the no-alcohol wines that are out there already, right? Some of those, um, you know, you look at uh, Chardonnay, for example, and they'll definitely have those oak cues that are in them from, a, you know, from an aromatic perspective. Those kinds of things. Figuring out which, which are the ones that are important, which work the best. I think there is going to be some, there would be some um, leeway, right? It doesn't have to be a perfect representation but because the consumer is gaining some health some benefits some health benefits they're willing to give a little bit on the on the taste or the on the sensory side of things right but there's a sweet spot somewhere where the health gain is not outweighed by the quality of the product and therefore they won't they won't buy it but we need to get to that tipping point where it actually is um, you know good enough there's a, there's a point where they'll become good enough or close enough to that traditional uh, traditional wine. And that's when that, that'll be that tipping point where they really can take off.
2: Do you think it preferences uh, regions or varieties which, you know, in that sense, like perhaps naturally in a normal wine sense, would produce a lighter, lower alcohol wine? And also, in a sense, preferencing white wines over reds, just in, a, in, a, in being able to achieve that um, sort of comparison?
1: Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, you look at, I, I think right away, you look at say the sparkling wine category. And to me, those are, that's the low hanging fruit, right? Because the traditional wines, traditional like full alcoholic wines, they're low in alcohol to begin with. They're, um, uh, you know, they're, they're light, refreshing. You've got more tools to work with as a winemaker. So you can, you've got the bubbles that are in there that are helping to build texture you can have a little bit of residual sugar in there, which also can build texture. So there's a few things there already that are that are uh, that are tools that a winemaker can use to help make that non-alcoholic sparkling more of a um, uh, uh, or closer to that traditional product. Um, something like, and, and then I guess it comes down to the chemistry as well. So the the process of removing the alcohol is um, there would be different sets of uh, aromatic and flavor compounds that would uh, remain in the, in the, in the wine or, 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 uh, or, are distilled out with the the ethanol. So that's one of the problems with, with making non-alcoholic wines is that when you remove the alcohol, you remove all the flavor as well, because they're, um, they, you know, they, they're distilled or evaporated at the same, at the same temperature. So, like Sauvignon Blanc, for instance, those characters that give that passion fruit, uh, the grapefruit, the cat pea, box hedge, those kinds of flavors, the, the thiol compounds, they're a bit heavier, so they actually stay in the wine. So Sauvignon Blanc is another, again, another good starting point for making these wines, because the finished product still looks, resembles, much a, like Sauvignon a, Sauvignon yeah, Blanc. It resembles
2: the Sauvignon Blanc. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Um, yeah. As a so. Uh, even that you sort of segue into actual winemaking. Um, away from the AWRI, um, uh, Richo is saying that you've been coaching me. I think I, I differ. I think I've just been packing pallets for you, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, well, you call it what you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a different kind of coaching, really, keeping me fit. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was great to actually just have a little window into your world down there in McLarenvale, would you care to share for the listeners what you've been getting up to and what varieties perhaps you like working with and what really sort of floats your boat like that as a winemaker?
1: Yeah. Well, um, so my brand,
2: um, is based in McLarenvale, uh,
1: we do about, uh, you know, between 20 and 25 tons uh, of fruit a year, up uh, being between, you know, maybe 1500, 1600 cases of wine a year. So pretty small, um, I can tell you though, when you're when you're looking at fifteen hundred cases all lined up in your warehouse, it's daunting. <laughs> it's still plenty. That,
2: that, um, that's why you get young future leaders to come and help you move it around, yeah, isn't it? Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I <laughs> see what's going mind. on here. Um, my my focus is with with my brand. I guess you know I've got this interesting dichotomy where I'm not uh, you know I've, I do uh, you know I work in this in this academic research world, which is very um, it's very black and white, uh, very rigorous, very um, tight and controlled. And then I have my uh, my winery, which is you know kind of the opposite. And I guess that's part of the the whole uh, basis of the juxtaposed uh, brand is that you know this is that's where I can go and I can play and do my that you know those those constraints they fall over a little bit and that's I, I, a bit there's a bit more freedom for me to play with. So the focus of my brand is is more site. So I um, you know a lot of single vineyard sites, uh, old vines, um, and it's about the old wines are, are terroir pieces. So they're, they're about the place they come from. And as a winemaker, I really try to um, you know I get that fruit, the, the fruit comes into the winery, and my job is just to guide it along its, uh, along its path and try to keep my fingerprints off it. It's really about trying to get those grapes, into the bottle looking as much as possible like the place that they came from and uh, and and that you know and that in the, that place the vineyards that we choose and we source our fruit from they're special and different from the vineyard down the road and so just just a segue sense. there
0: where's I've had a text come in from Kim who says loving the juxtaposed weight vineyard Shiraz. could you please ask where's what makes that vineyard so special
1: so that vineyard sits right at Almost at the top of Blue Springs, so Blue Springs is, um, it's the most east and most uh, and highest uh, part of McLaren vale And um, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of years ago, the ocean used to wash up there, and so the soils in Blue Springs have all this real sand element to them, right? It's where the ancient beaches used to wash up. So some of these vineyards, and especially the vineyards that were planted you know, 100 years ago, 70 years ago, you know, pre-irrigation, this sandy element in the soil really allows the vines to push down deep to the water table. So now, you know, 100 years on for some of these vineyards, these vines are really well, um, uh, they, they can survive the, uh, you know, the warm climate that we have here, sometimes the real dry summers because they have access to the water because the root system is so deep and so well established. Conversely, you know, if you're planted in, um, you know, planted in the valley floor, you've got much denser soils. You've got irrigation. Your vines never push that far deep down yeah. because, of course, the water is near the top of the soil, right where the irrigation is. So all these old vineyards that have you know never been irrigated, um, they really they really do very well in Blue Springs because of that sandy element to the soil. And so that weight that weight vineyard in particular, which is right at the top of uh, of Blue Springs. Um, it was planted in 43, I believe. Yeah. And, um, it's just one of those kind of iconic Blue Springs vineyards. There's a, there's a pretty, there's a pretty good list of producers who have sourced fruit from there over the years. Um, and we're fortunate that one of my business partners is a, uh, he's a consulting viticulturist and kind of like a grower liaison here in McLarenville And he was his, I think it was his, uh, was forty-eight vintage in McLaren Vale this year. Jeez. So as a viticulturist, he's, you know, there isn't a single vineyard he hasn't walked up and down the yeah. road on. And so he has these relationships with these growers. And so this is one of the, you know, one of the growers that he's known for many years. And they give us a small allocation of fruit every year, even though there's lots of, you know, lots of big, big producers who are uh, lined up to get yeah. fruit from there. Yeah. And so, and so for me, I'm you know, I kind of feel like as a winemaker, I'm um, it's almost an honor to get fruit like that, right? So I don't want to stuff it up. I really focus on just getting that that vineyard to to, to smell and to taste exactly like. It came from that place, and it's a really unique vineyard. It's got this real kind of savoury, uh, beef stocky character that you don't see in McLaren Vale too much. It's Yeah, it's a wonderful place to get fruit from. It, um, We're really lucky to be able to source grapes from there.
2: Bush vine or trellis there? Uh,
1: there's a mix of both. The Grenache there is, uh, is bush vine, but the Shiraz that you're, that Kim was talking about, that's trellis.
0: Yeah. Yum! I need to get my hands on some of these wines. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a it's a real pleasure to have you on. We just ran out of time, unfortunately, Wes. But um, you've been such a great guest, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us on a Sunday morning on the Wine Show Australia.
1: It's been my pleasure for sure. Thank you.